0: This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox to register. Now, this is part one of a multi-part series. So, you know, we're not going to go over everything that's in that white paper today because if you've started reading the white paper, you'll find that it is pretty intense. When I was making this class I was going through and, um, and highlighting and finally I just put my highlighter down because I was highlighting more than I was leaving behind. So there's a lot of information and we're going to try to cover the first part of it today and I'd, we're going to drag this out or spread it out, not drag, um, over the next few weeks so you can get a better idea and really feel like you have a good grasp of what's going on. So. We're going to move through these um, things. One of the things that my IT staff wanted me to tell you was if you're having problems with your internet connection being too slow, the, it's stopping and buffering a lot or something, if you mouse over the top right corner, it'll say it'll give you what speed you're at. And if you choose the one that's 300 and something, um, that is the slow speed. So if you're on a slower internet connection, you'll probably have a better experience. That being said, we're going to move on to our first slide. Um, As those of you who've been here before know, what you need to do in order for us to be able to send you the email so you can get CEUs, um, if you choose to do that, you do need to put in your first name and your last name. This does not go out to the general public, this is just for our information, so if you do get CEUs, we can make sure we can show the board that you were here and participating. I'm going to give you a little bit of time, to put in your first and last name because once I go to the next screen you're gonna have to go with me. Okay, moving on 3, 2, 1. Now you need to put in your email address. Now the email address again is so we can send you an email after this class and if you choose to purchase the CEUs and sign up great. If you don't you know that's fine too, I'm just really happy to have you here. Now, I am going to move on, but the next poll questions don't come for a while, so you've got plenty of time if you've got one of those long, old email addresses to put in. Okay. Resources. This presentation is based in part upon a white paper from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. It's called Complex Trauma in Children and Adolescents, and it was published in 2003. You can find this online. If you Google it, you can print it out. I highly, highly suggest it if you work with children um, who have complex trauma issues, or if you work with adults in substance abuse treatment or just regular old mental health treatment, a lot of times we find that a lot of our patients do have a trauma history of some sort. Now whether it's complex trauma or PTSD level, um, that's not necessarily the issue, but this paper can give you a lot of good information on what you might look for and what symptoms might be present because just because somebody does not meet the clinical definition of PTSD or any of our diagnostic things, um, it doesn't mean that they don't have some of the symptoms. So today we're going to define complex trauma, highlight the cost of complex trauma, you know, we have to kind of create an issue. And examine the impact and diagnostic issues of complex trauma. Now, we're not going to get all through the diagnostic issues today. (laughs) We're just going to start scratching that surface. But we'll give you an idea and an introduction. And again, if you're going to attend next week, we're going to pick up where we leave off today. So you might find that um, printing out that white paper is really helpful. So what is complex trauma? We talk about PTSD. We talk about generalized anxiety disorder. We talk about acute stress disorder. But complex trauma is not in the DSM. Um, So what is it? Complex trauma is the combination or the um, outcome when you have a child or youth exposed to traumatic events. And then we look at the short and long term impact of that exposure. Because guess what? The short-term impacts that cause changes, they're going to have reverberating impacts over time. So some of these issues that we're going to see or that we may see in children who are experiencing complex trauma are emotional dysregulation, loss of safety, inability to detect or respond to danger cues, inability to detect or respond to internal cues, so, those internal cues that say, danger, 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 but also the external cues that go, ooh, huh, I may, may ought to get the heck out of here. And we'll talk about generalization of cues. Um, one of the examples I give, um, uh, a, a person that I grew up with was first-generation Italian, wonderful, wonderful man, but he would talk with his hands. Big, big hand movements. Always talking. You'll notice I kind of picked up a lot of that. I have big hand gestures. My IT staff gets on me all the time. They're like, we cannot keep you on camera. Um, But you know, so my arm goes off the screen. But to me, that's just talking. To someone who grew up in a situation where they witnessed a lot of domestic violence, if they see big hand gestures, what might that mean to them? Danger. Somebody's getting upset. Somebody's getting angry. Somebody's going to get hit so generalization of cues from a particular situation or person to the entire world whenever i see anybody doing this um i cower in fear or get stressed out complex trauma is most likely to develop if the danger is unpredictable and uncontrollable so unpredictable you know we're not going to predict a danger and go hey, well some people would i shouldn't say that i know a lot of uh Uh, people who might be more inclined to do something because it's dangerous and it's an adrenaline rush. But most of us err on the side of caution. My husband used to um, be a spotter for the helicopter when he worked for the sheriff's office, which was fine. I don't have a problem with helicopters, but they would take off perfectly good doors. And really, why would you take off perfectly good doors when you're flying 1,500, 2,000 feet in the air? But... uh, so the danger is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Now we're talking about children here. So what's controllable for a six-year-old and what's controllable for a 26-year-old may be very different. And we'll talk about that more because that's a really important point. And the greatest source of danger, the unpredictability and uncontrollability, is the absence of a caregiver who reliably and responsively nurtures and protects the child. So the short less gobbledygook version is if you've got an attentive parent who helps the child not get overwhelmed and navigate through this crisis, they'll do really well. But if they don't have that caregiver that is there providing the support and the resources that the young child doesn't have, then we start to see negative consequences. So our first question, and again, remember that if you are needing to get this Um, these CEUs for live interactive, you do need to participate in every single poll question. That way we can show that you are still with us. So the question, what describes caregivers and home environments of children who present with complex trauma? And the first response is substance use. Yes, unpredictable and uncontrollable. I don't know when mom's going to be sober. I don't know when she's going to be passed out. I don't know if she's coming home tonight. And I don't know who she's going to bring with her. Mental health issues, especially uncontrolled mental health issues. Now, if somebody's got their mental health issues and they're stabilized, that's a whole different ballgame. But if the child doesn't know whether manic mom or depressed mom is going to show up, or if they have a parent that has a personality disorder, that in and of itself makes life a lot more unpredictable. Stress. A lot of parents who are in the... um, in this situation where they are unable to provide a stable environment for a child, have a lot of stress. They're working two jobs. They may be abusing substances. They may be not. They may have different people in and out of their lives. It's unpredictable. Their life situation may change quickly. There may be domestic violence. Um, There may be multiple relationships and the child's like, I don't know who belongs, who's actually related. I don't know. Um, Community. If people are in a stable community where there's not a lot of people moving in and moving out, not a lot of danger, that's great. If you live in a community where there is a lot of danger or there is a lot of um, transience, then it's harder for the child to form attachments. And we know from long ago that transient neighborhoods, inability to form good, strong connections um, creates a situation or creates a risk factor for the development of substance abuse later. And sadness. If people are sad, it's hard for them, if they're emotionally overwhelmed themselves, it's hard for them to be able to be there and be present emotionally and physically for the child. Let's see if I covered all the ones that came through. I think I did. You can still continue to respond to this question if you're typing a long answer or you're still trying to think of something. Um, And I'm going to move on to the next one. So, what happens when you have this caregiver who is either emotionally or physically or both absent? In the infancy stage, birth to 18 months, birth to two years, they develop trust versus mistrust. What does that mean? That means when the baby cries, the parent responds. Now, if you're a parent, you know babies have different cries, and generally it means, I'm wet, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm scared, or I'm uncomfortable. Um, As a parent, you learn to differentiate these, and you learn over time to help the child meet these needs. So when he cries because he's wet, if you change him, he's like, oh, I got that one right. I figured out how to communicate a need. If he cries because he's wet, and you give him a bottle, then the child's confused. They're like, but uh, no, that's not working for me. And as an infant, you know, they're not able to articulate all that in their brain. They just know that something's still not right. So they're going to continue to cry. A lot of parents will meet a child's um, cries in this stage, or demands, or whatever you want to call it, because the parent doesn't have the ability to differentiate, or doesn't take the time or isn't there or whatever, everything's met with a bottle. Just pop a bottle in the mouth, plug it up. Um, what does that teach our children? That teaches them that every single cue they have inside means I'm hungry, but then I eat and I still don't feel any better, so now I feel helpless. This is a crucial part and for a lot of our patients, adults, adolescents, and children, we may need to go back and say, before you eat, before you drink, before you use. Figure out at least, try to figure out what's going on. Because infants do not have um, words yet. They can't in their little six-month-old brain go, okay, I'm angry or I'm scared. They don't have words to use at all yet. So this is something that as parents, we're charged with teaching them. And if they don't learn that, then they grow up to be 8, 9, 10, 30-year-olds who still don't have the words to put with it. Early childhood is when children develop a sense of personal control over their physical skills and a sense of independence. If every time a child tries to do something, they get punished for it, go sit down, go to your room. I don't have time for that right now. Go away. What do they learn? They learn that they're being, there's a sense of rejection. And a child doesn't say, oh, well, mom's stressed out right now, so maybe I'll try this later. No, a two-year-old is going to take it personally and go, oh, well, I must not be a very good person because my caregiver doesn't want to spend time with me and I can't do anything right. Remember, children think dichotomously. So, next poll question's coming up. During the trust versus mistrust period, birth to 18 months, birth to two years, what are children supposed to learn? We talked about some of that just a few minutes ago. To trust themselves. Exactly. They're supposed to learn that, okay, this feeling means I'm hungry. So when I'm hungry, if I eat, I feel better. Hmm. You know, we talked about chaining last week. Well, that's a perfect chain. Um, So they learn to trust their own instincts. Uh, Sometimes I call them my spidey senses. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the primitive eating, sleeping, you know, those sorts of things. But if I'm working with a patient or if I'm in a situation and my spidey senses go off, that tells me something's wrong. And I've had to learn to trust my spidey senses um, to tell me that, okay, I need to do something different or I need to prepare because something's going on. They need to learn how to talk and trust themselves. They need to learn how to give words to the stuff, to say, I'm angry, I'm scared. I am, you know, fill in the blank. Children aren't just born with these words. And in, in, in a lot of environments, the children aren't, lear- aren't learned. Woo. You can tell the knife was quick kicking in, huh? Um. <laughs> in some of these environments, children learn to use the word angry or exhausted for everything. Or they learn words that aren't even feelings, like, I feel stupid stupid's not a feeling. Embarrassed, ashamed, guilty, those are feelings. Tell me what stupid looks like or what does that mean to you. Um, They need to learn how to correctly identify those basic things for survival. Hunger, thirst, tiredness, fear, anxiety. You know, that whole fight or flight reaction, we have it for a reason. It's to keep us safe. All right. And they need to learn to trust the caregiver to trust that the caregiver will help them meet their needs when they can't do it themselves. A six-month-old can't go to the fridge and get a bottle. So they need to learn to trust that the caregiver will be there. From a six-month-old's perspective, if the caregiver doesn't come and give a bottle, you know, theoretically, if the caregiver never comes, the child could starve, okay? So you see how, for a six-month-old, lack of attentiveness may be more damaging or more traumatizing than for a 16-year-old who can go raid the refrigerator anytime he wants. A little bit older, because I know we're talking about children and adolescents here. At preschool age, children begin asserting control over the environment. Success leads to a sense of purpose, and failure leads to a sense of guilt, like we talked about earlier. This is just taking more control and trying new things. Unfortunately, children who try to exert too much power experience disapproval resulting in guilt. Okay, so what does too much power look like? It means being a bully. Or that may mean trying to do too much because maybe at home this two-year-old is responsible for making his own food and taking a bath and, well, let's say six-year-old and getting his little sister a bottle. All these grown-up tasks because the boundaries are just obliterated. Well, if that same child goes to grandma's house and tries to do that, grandma may be like, what are you doing? I'll feed the baby when I get to it. So then the six-year-old's going, but no, isn't that my job? What am I supposed to do? I'm confused. Six to 11 years old, school age, there's new social and academic demands. And we know that if we take children who are emotionally and physically stressed, that they're going to have difficulty meeting some of these demands. Um, And they may not know what the expectations are. What is it that I'm supposed to do? And then in the teenage years, teens need to develop a sense of self and personal identity. And if they've always felt guilty and shameful and never able to measure up and like they were never good enough and they felt stupid, well, guess what? It's gonna be really hard for them to develop a sense of self because they have no clue what they're good at. Isn't that sad? I think it's sad. Cognitive influences. Remember, I keep talking about the six-month-old versus the 26-year-old. Children, when they are younger, are in that pre- pre-operational and sensory motor stage. They don't take other people's perspectives well at all. It's about me. I see what's going on with me. I have a hard time understanding multiple viewpoints or abstract reasoning. So if you have a child who is going through all this stuff, and the classic example is the child who's in an abusive household, they can't understand that mommy doesn't control anger very well. What they get is, I'm a bad child, and I bring this on myself, and I am bad. I am disciplined because I am bad. And they can't understand any other possible perspectives. And no matter how how much you try to explain it, a lot of times they still can't. So these are things that you need to look look back on. Okay, I'm going to let you sit on this slide for a second, and I need to take a quick little break. Okay, thank you for that. Um, the National Insta- Incident Study of Child Abuse and Neglect, the one that this white paper was based on, was done in 1996. The number of children in 1996 who met the standard of being exposed to a harmful situation, which means that whatever was going on in their life, it was found to be a at a threshold where it did produce physical and or psychological harm. In one year was 1,553,800. That is a lot of kids who were harmed. The endangerment standard is a little bit below. It's where the child was exposed to this stuff and could have been harmed. Nearly 3 million. Nearly 3 million kids in 1996 were exposed to situations that could have caused them harm. Emotional neglect, emotional abuse was found to be part of the equation in half a million of the cases, a little over half a million. So this is just kind of highlighting why it's a problem. In 2006, the study was redone, so it's done about every 10 years. The harm standard actually went down a little bit. In 2006, only 1.25 million children were harmed. That's good. Because there's actually more children, so um, the endangerment standard went up just slightly, not, not statistically significant, um, to right about 3 million still. The significant finding in the 2006 study, though, was those experiencing emotional neglect or abuse almost tripled, It's like over double.
1: Yeah, I don't do math
0: in my head very well. But over a million children... And what is it that goes on in emotional neglect and abuse? Or shall I say, what is the challenge with it? So many times, especially if the emotional neglect and abuse is the worst part, if you will, and the physical stuff that leaves the bruises and the marks and everything else is not as bad, these children are left in the home. So they're left in a situation where they're constantly bombarded with emotional neglect and abuse. What does that do? We'll talk about that. It impairs in seven different domains, as defined by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network Complex Trauma Task Force. I was afraid I wasn't going to remember that acronym. Woo-hoo! Good for me. Um, Seven domains of impairment they have identified. Attachment, which we're going to talk about today. In future weeks, we're also going to talk about biology, affect regulation, dissociation, behavioral regulation, cognition, and self-concept. Now, again, put yourself in the place of a child or adolescent that you've worked with who has maybe had uh, traumatic experiences and may be experiencing complex trauma. Okay, I can think of half a dozen right off the top of my head, unfortunately. If you were in their shoes, would you have difficulty securely attaching to people? Well, yeah. Um, biologically, do those children typically have differences in their biology? Maybe. Affect regulation, do they control their emotions as well as a child who has, like, the uber-perfect Warden-June Cleaver household? Probably not. Why? Because they don't don't learn how to, among other things. Um, and, and they're just inundated with so much more stuff that they're having to deal with. Dissociation. Most normal households, if you want to use that term, normal, those that are not replete with violence and um, unpredictability, the children don't have to dissociate because it's safe. They can stay present and accounted for. Behavioral regulation. Well, cognitive behavioral therapy. We know that if our cognitions and our our affect is kind of out here and we're having trouble with those, Our behavior is self-protective. So if our emotions are out of control, we're going to act to try to protect ourselves. And self-concept. We just talked about that repeated rejection, repeated um, problems with understanding what the world expects of them. So secure attachment, this is what we want, is characterized by a child who can internalize regulation strategies. When they get upset, they know how to regulate that upsetness so they don't melt down every single time. Now, do children get overwhelmed? Oh, yeah. Do children and adolescents have anger outbursts and temper tantrums? Yeah. Do I? Yeah. Every once in a while it happens. So, just because somebody's not 100% perfect with emotional regulation doesn't mean that they're insecurely attached. But children who are securely attached, most of the time, can regulate, regulate their emotions and keep things relatively in balance. They can identify correctly internal and external cues. This is a safe place, those people are happy, I feel okay. Um, we'll talk about head, heart, and gut honesty. That's one of the things that we work on a lot in, a, in treatment with adults. What does your head say? Okay. That's only part of the picture. What does your heart say? That's what you want to do. What does it say? And what does your gut tell you? Most of the time, the gut is the one that overrides everything and goes, hello, this isn't right. It doesn't feel right in my gut. People who learn to identify internal and external cues can assess all three of those, assimilate them, and make a reasonable choice. Children who grow up in a situation where it's don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, These are all going off in different directions, and they have no idea what to do. They just oftentimes will react in order to make the stimulation stop. And people who are securely attached use support systems in the face of overwhelming experience. Are we meant to go through life all by ourselves? No. We rely on other people. When our coping skills get overwhelmed, you call a friend. You call your mother. You call your father. You... Do something. You rely on social supports. As I'm sure you learned in Psychology 101, social support is one of the greatest buffers against stress and stress-related illnesses. That means you have to have a support system. I mean, it's great if you can talk to your dog. It's great if you've got an awesome relationship with your higher power. But sometimes you also just need another human being who can be there to bounce ideas off of. 80% 80% of maltreated children, now go back, and that's the endangerment category, so we're looking at about 3 million. 80% of those children develop insecure attachments. God help the teachers. Now, wonder half the time when you're walking through the halls of the school, they just have this glazed look over their face like, oh my gosh. They have children who are having difficulty with emotional regulation, with cognition, with behavioral regulation, because they've got some stuff going on with attachment. There's three types of attachment problems. Avoidant. These children reject caregiving, uh, or avoid interaction with adults. It often comes from rejecting caregiving. So the parent going, you are just too much trouble, go cry it out. Um, I remember when I supervised a mother-baby unit, the, one of the worst things, evidently, that I ever asked them to do, or told them they had to do, was play with their children. And it befuddled me. They wanted to put the child in the swing, in front of Barney or Elmo for eight hours a day. Feed them, change them, put them back in front of the TV for the rest of the day until it was time to go to bed. And I just couldn't understand this. Um, and, And what I came to learn was the parent wasn't able to identify their own internal states and was completely overwhelmed all the time, so they were unable to deal with the child, which again, the child can't say, oh, mom's stressed out, you know, maybe I don't need a bottle right now. The child internalizes that as rejection. Mommy doesn't want to hold me. I'm not getting any comfort. You can go back to the old Bowlby experiments with the the monkeys if you want to really look at the initial attachment studies. But we found that children who aren't attended to, children who aren't held, children who aren't um, helped develop problems trusting themselves and others later. They learn to disregard others, what can you do for me, and distrust themselves and others. I don't know who I can trust. Ambivalent children, their parents alternate between validation and invalidation, detachment and enmeshment. And I put in here borderline-esque and it's not in the best practice or the white paper, but it's the best way I know how to describe it um, to people who work with parents who have this sort of turn on a dime, don't know whether Jekyll or Hyde is going to show up situation going on. And it's not that they want to. Again, the parents are often emotionally encumbered themselves. And sometimes they can be there for the child or sometimes they sober up for a while and they're there and then life hits them in the face and they use again and they're gone. So you have that, I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna be the best parent and they're enmeshed. The addiction kicks back in and they're gone. Children become hypersensitive to cues and overgeneralize. When mom starts getting edgy, that means she's going to be irritable and rejecting. So those cues that mom sends out when she's edgy Whenever the child sees them in anyone else, they're like, ooh, better back off. Six-month-olds, 18-month-olds, three-year-olds, you can watch the child almost change when they begin to perceive something that's dangerous or anxiety-provoking. They're hypersensitive to those cues. And children may disconnect to protect. I'm going to back off because I can't control you. You outweigh me. You're older than me you're louder than me. Well, not necessarily. But they disconnect because it's not safe to be connected with that person who is so unpredictable. And disorganized. Well, disorganized kind of says it all. There's a lack of co-regulation. The mother or father or caregiver and I'm a mother so I use mother a lot more than father. It's not a gender thing. It's just because I'm a mom. (laughs) Um, If the parent does not effectively teach the child how to calm down, then things will become very disorganized for the child. If you've been a mother or a babysitter or whatever, and you've ever had an infant with you, you probably have experienced the fact that when you get upset, when you are edgy, the infant tends to be more irritable. When you hold them and your heart rate is slower, their heart rate slows down. When your breathing is slower, their breathing slows down. There's that co-regulation. So if the infant is upset and a calming caregiver brings them in, protects them, and also has that calming influence, then the child will learn how to de-escalate themselves. When they don't learn to do this, their behavior may become erratic. Why? It's that sort of, okay, I need to make this stop. I don't know what's going to make it stop, so well, let me try being clingy. All right, that didn't work. Let me try being dismissive. Fine, I don't need you.
1: Maybe she'll come after
0: me. Okay, that didn't work. Let me try being aggressive. Hello, bang, bang, bang. Um, You're not paying attention to me and something is terribly wrong. I'm too young to have the words to tell you what's going on,
1: but I am unable
0: to calm myself down. So I am going to try everything in my arsenal to get your attention so you can help me calm down and figure out what in the world is going on. Now, if this continues into adolescence, a lot of times we see extreme behavior that's very rigid. Um, it's either helplessness or coer- coercive control. It doesn't often go back and forth between the two unless you're going more towards personality disorders. But <clears throat> the person tends to be very, very helpless. They learned over time that there's nothing they can do. They might as well just let life happen to them. Or they become very aggressive, trying to control the situation. Angry, pushing people away. Whatever it takes to be safe. Have I said that enough this time, this presentation? It all goes back to primitive safety and protecting themselves. So give me some other examples of why children would want to alternate, or would alternate, it's not that they want to, between being clingy, dismissive, and aggressive. They get the same response, the same responses get different, unpredictable results. So one day when I'm clingy, I get told to go to my room. The next day when I'm clingy, I get a hug. Well, I'm really trying for the hug and it's really worth the effort, so I'm going to try being clingy and see if I can get that hug. This reactive attachment disorder um, definitely is what we're talking about when we're looking at complex trauma. And if we get there today, I don't know if we will, Um, Reactive attachment disorder is one of the most common diagnoses you see in children with complex trauma, along with generalized anxiety, ADHD. They don't feel secure, so they're doing whatever they can to try to make sense and get control of their environment. And they may be testing which gets me love and attention. If I do this, does it work today? Well, it worked last week. It doesn't work today. Let me try to do this. It's hard to get into the mind of a three-year-old. But if you can get into the mind of a three-year-old and put yourself in that child's position and go, what does a three-year-old want? What does a three-year-old need? Then it's easier a little bit to try to understand the meaning or the motivation behind the behaviors. They can't regulate their emotions, so they react differently to different feelings. All they know, especially when they're smaller, is they feel out of control. Um, And I'll give you a little jump ahead to next week, because I read this fabulous article um, from the British Journal of Psychiatry that actually showed that in trauma, things happen in Brokaw's area of the brain that actually inhibit language. So when people say, I don't have the words for it, or it's unspeakable, or they can't describe to you what's going on, it's because that part of their brain is going, ah! Um, Clingy, dismissive, and aggressive may also be something that they're doing to try to either divert attention. Mommy and Daddy are arguing, so if I can focus the attention on me, then the food givers are going to stop arguing and the scariness will stop. Um, Clingy, maybe that behavior gets rewarded. Dismissive, maybe that behavior gets rewarded. So you need to look at how the caregivers react to those behaviors. Is it rewarded? And if it is, well, then maybe the child, in their own way, is trying to get approval. Um, let's see. Okay. Again, you can continue putting in answers if you haven't gotten yours up here, but that was a really good um, variety. Consequences of poor attachment lifelong risks, not just till they get into a better environment, lifelong risks. For physical and psychosocial dysfunction, including increased susceptibility to stress, inability to regulate emotions, and extremes in help-seeking. Extremes, again, either overly passive, I'm not going to ask anybody for help, um, it's just whatever, or I need help all the time. I can't, very dependent, I can't do it on my own. So, in what ways do our patients continue to display difficulty taking multiple viewpoints or their insecure attachments to other people? They have a hard time not being egocentric. Okay. As children, the world revolved around them. Their thinking was black and white, very dichotomous. And so sometimes they may have a hard time if they were never taught to look at multiple viewpoints or if they failed to develop their cognitive skills to that stage, they may have a hard time understanding that your spouse comes home and is in a crappy mood because traffic was bad, and guess what? It has nothing to do with you. Um, Manipulation. A lot of children who grow up in environments that are not healthy, that are traumatic, still are involved with that family. And there may still be a lot of manipulation and dysfunction going on, So their family of origin may continue to teach them that it's not safe to trust people. Don't trust others' emotions. Can't decide if they caused it. Again, that lack of emotional boundary. You're angry, so it must be because of something I did. No, not so much. Everybody has a choice, and my patients hear me say this over and over again. You can't make anybody feel any particular way. They choose that. So while we have a guttural reaction, somebody may get angry, but then they can choose whether to hold on to that anger and nurture it. They can choose whether to take it personally and feel guilty or whatever. But having people recognize that they're responsible for their own emotions and figuring out what to do with it and how they want to use their energy. Um, And they may not have any empathy. They may may not have experienced any empathy. When they were growing up they may not know how to express empathy. Um, As adults, if we see our, our patients having complete temper tantrums and meltdowns when they don't get their own way or feeling extremely entitled, they're gonna get what they want when they want it and it's all on their agenda. That tells me that there's something somewhere that went a little wrong. They're either protecting themselves because they're scared of something or they're angry So I want to look at what this big bluster of entitlement is about. It's hard to trust that others' feelings are genuine. Well, yeah. It's hard to trust anyway, because I don't know what I'm feeling if I've experienced complex trauma. So how how good am I going to be at reading other people's feelings? From a child's point of view, this makes the whole world really, really scary and confusing. And they can't trust themselves, they can't trust anybody else, they can't figure out how to interpret stuff. So we keep coming back to this trust thing, this trust thing. So we're going to talk about some symptoms and interventions. And I don't think we're going to get to the end of the PowerPoint today where we talk about those diagnoses. We'll pick, pick up there next week. But poor attachment, symptoms and interventions. Children are uncertain about the reliability and predictability of the world they wake up in the morning and, you know, most kids wake up and they're like, okay, it's a school day, we have this routine, we do this, and people are going to behave this way, and I can kind of predict it. And somebody will throw a curveball in once in a while, but it's occasionally. It's occasionally. That's fine. In children with complex trauma, they wake up in the morning and they're like, oh, God, what am I in for today? So, there's uncertainty about anything. The first thing... It's to help these people, children or adolescents, learn effective vocabulary. I'm stupid, I'm lazy, I'm fat. Those aren't feeling words. Tell me what those mean to you. Let's try to figure out other words to use. And I happen to like it, and I'm not a big one for journals and that sort of thing. But that little poster that you can find that has all the different faces with all the different emotional expressions, I love that. Because you can look at it and you go, yeah, that's how I feel. I feel like that guy with the real squiggly mouth that um, feels okay. So give people visual tools and help them u- learn to use their vocabulary that helps them express how they feel and what's going on inside them. Again, in treatment, we do grounding exercises every day. How do you feel emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially? that may be a little bit too abstract for um, young adolescents and children, but you can talk about emotions. You can talk about how you feel. Do you feel crummy? Do you feel tired? Physically and emotionally are two of the easiest ones to get at. Have them practice mindfulness. I talked about it earlier. Head, heart, and gut. So if the kid says, I'll know how I feel, say, okay, tell me what's going on inside your head. What are you thinking about? Tell me what's going on inside your heart. Does it hurt today? Or is your heart happy? And what about your gut? One of the things that gave me my first clue to the fact that uh, my son had ADHD was the fact that he was really struggling in school. And he would come home and he'd say, mommy, I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I have carnitores in my tummy. Oh my gosh, that broke my heart, you know, because I spent like most of my life in school. so we talked about what, why carnivores were in his tummy and what made those carnivores get upset. And long story short, he was so afraid of misbehaving and going to a yellow or a red on the stoplight of behavior that he couldn't focus on his schoolwork. And his ADD, he had, he had to use all of his energy to keep from being impulsive or talking over someone or, or acting a little crazy. Um, so that helped me understand. I said, okay, that gives me something to work with. They may not use the same vocabulary, but they can give you an understanding of what's going on, and then have the person, if they're old enough, not with a four-year-old necessarily, but have them examine the validity of what's going on. If they're feeling really scared and anxious, let's figure out what that's about, and then let's figure out whether that's really something to be scared and anxious about and for some children it is I mean a lot of their fears are very valid it is hard to be an adolescent but there are also some things that they may be overgeneralized. and Sally walked down the hall today and she didn't say hi when she walked past so she's must be mad at me and my world is going to end Um, well maybe Sally just got a F on her test There could be other reasons. So again, helping the child look for other explanations for things that are making them anxious or angry. Or if anger or fear is a reasonable response to their thoughts, how do you deal with it? Once they identify the emotion and are able to put words with it, then how do they deal with it? And talk about concrete strategies. Problems with boundaries. They'll have to learn about emotional, social, and physical boundaries. Emotional is probably some of the easiest with helping people realize that they feel how they feel, and that's okay. Just because everybody else in the room is happy doesn't mean they have to be happy. I would like them to be, but if that's not how they feel, then let's talk about why. Just because everybody else in the room is stressed out doesn't mean they have to be. Um, And it also doesn't mean, especially for children, that they're responsible for making the stress go away from everybody else. If you've worked in substance abuse, you probably have had patients who um, grew up as children taking care of their parent. I remember one of my patients talking about being eight years old and tucking his mom in on the sofa because she would drink herself into a stupor every night and black out. And he would tuck her in and turn off the TV and put himself to bed. So helping children learn what they are responsible for, that whole serenity prayer, what they can and cannot control. Social boundaries. How much is too much? Some of our patients will just, they'll meet somebody and they'll be like, oh, I want you to be my best friend right now. So it's all of a sudden, all or nothing, and they overwhelm the person with way too much information. So talking about what's appropriate self-disclosure. And what's appropriate to expect in a relationship. You don't just meet somebody and trust them implicitly from the get-go, I hope, and, and talk about different experiences. And physical boundaries, you know, that's that's pretty concrete. It's okay to say, I'm not a huggy person, um, or please don't touch me on the shoulder, or whatever it is. Help them learn how to identify their boundaries and assert their boundaries correctly in a way that won't help them, in a way that won't encourage rejection. Examine their current relationships. Let's look at this relationship and see if it has good boundaries. Are you allowed to feel your feelings when you're in the presence of this person? Are you allowed to be angry and that person won't completely lose their mind? If not, then let's talk about how to set appropriate emotional boundaries in that situation and discuss motivations for maintaining poor boundaries. Why is it that you feel you have to fix everybody? Why is it that you feel guilty for being happy? Why is that dangerous? And really it comes back to that safety, trust, and danger thing. If you go back to when they were younger, it wasn't safe to have their own feelings. It wasn't safe to trust their own feelings.
1: And now they don't
0: know what's gonna happen If they express what they think are their feelings, then they're not even sure if they are their feelings. So you get the idea. We start with identifying those internal and external cues. You've got to start from the get-go again. You may speed through it, some some of the parts, really quickly. But figure out what went wrong in the programming from birth until now. Interpersonal difficulties with trust, communication, and attachment. Model those. Not the difficulties, but appropriate trust, communication, and attachment. So, one of the greatest things about therapy is it gives people a chance to start a relationship, appropriately develop the relationship. I don't know about you, but I have days when I go into the office and it's not bad enough where I needed to call out, but I'm kind of in a funk, you know? Um, <clears throat> my patients come in, and if I know I'm dealing with somebody who's working on emotional boundaries and things, or if I'm working with a child. I may start out by saying, you know, I really didn't sleep well last night, so I'm really tired, and I'm sorry if I seem flatter today. Nothing to do with you, I'm just, I'm exhausted. Um, Starting out by telling the person that, that uh, because I have identified my own internal cues, and I know what it looks like on my face, and I've said, this is what it looks like, and you know what? It was there before you got here. It has nothing to do with you. And help the person really internalize that, Um, especially if they're acting different then be like, you know, I'm wondering if you're still interpreting my flatness um, as something you're doing or if you're concerned about something. Help them understand how other people impact them because most people don't. They just are reacting. Education, about trust, about effective communication, the difference between passive, assertive, and aggressive. Verbally aggressive, physically aggressive, it doesn't matter, let's look at aggressive. And let's look at passive, you don't have to be a doormat. What do those look like? And you have the choice, you can choose to be passive. If your friends ask you what movie you wanna go see and you truly don't know, it's okay to say, I don't know, I don't care. But if you care, and then you want to say something. And what does secure attachment look like? That's the one you'll spend the most time on because it's hard to learn to trust someone and to forgive and all those things that go along with human relationships and help them take perspectives. Um, My son's preschool teacher did an excellent job. Um, At preschool level, something would happen and she would pull the children aside and separate them and say, okay, little Johnny, how do you think it made Sally feel when that happened? Or how would you feel if Sally did that to you? Very simple, but it helps the child start learning how to take perspectives. As adults, we may still have to do that, not in the same tone, but ask your patient, you know, what do you think was going on in John's head when you said that to him? Um, is there anything else that might be going on that might be causing John to act that way? One of my favorites, when when clients are holding themselves to this standard that's way up here of perfection, and setting themselves up for failure, of course, because none of us are perfect, I say, Ri- now, if you would take some time and think about it, if your child did not live up to that standard, how would you feel about him or her? Would you... Um, reject him or her for that?" And usually the patient looks at me and goes, no, that would be ridiculous. I'm like, oh really? So what makes you so much more perfect? Nothing. Growing up when they didn't get any validation they didn't learn how to set reasonable standards and reasonable boundaries. So they figure, well maybe if I reach up here then somebody will approve of me. Well that's not gonna happen either. If they don't approve of you when you're normal They're probably not going to approve of you when you're perfect. And in reality, there is no normal and there is no perfect, so we're all kind of at a loss. Um, Difficulty interpreting nonverbal cues. Practice in group, vignettes, and client self-report. If people are getting edgy, have them interpret, do some gestalt exercises, and interpret those nonverbal cues. What does that mean to you when... Um, I had a patient, for example, who came in and she'd wear a ball cap down, and she would sit in the chair and she'd sit sideways and prop her feet up. Now, first reaction is, well, that's disrespectful, but I said, okay, let's, let's ride with it and see where this goes. That was protective. That was very protective because she wasn't just closed off, she was turned away. So... She was a lot more protected. She had her eyes covered, so I couldn't read her facial expressions either. She didn't trust. She was scared. That's okay. I can meet her there. I can start there, acting it out, and then have self reports of clients. Have them tell you about experience they had, uh, experiences they had during the week that they got angry or upset about. And help them reduce inappropriate generalization of nonverbal cues. Because somebody scowls, because somebody grunts, because somebody sighs, because somebody fill in the blank. I mean there's a whole litany of things. It's actually a fun group to do is just to list all these different nonverbals that mean negative things. And then go back and look for alternate explanations. Um, Lack of eye contact. Help them reduce the generalization. Yes, it could mean this negative thing over here, but what else could it mean? If a person is just non-reactive and non-smiling, it could mean you made them angry, or you did something that they chose to be angry about, more appropriately stated. Or it could mean they were up all night, or it could mean they're sick, or it could mean they've got a toothache. There's a lot of things it could mean. So let's examine the reasons Why you're internalizing it, hint, because it's what they've always done, and let's look at alternative ways to deal with it. And difficulty enlisting other people as allies, model help seeking, role play help seeking. And it doesn't have to be when something's going bad, I call and ask for help. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be all that earth shattering, but enlisting other people as allies, if you've got Six things that need to be done, and you've only got time to do four. Do you let two of them just go by the wayside, or do you ask somebody for help? And what does it mean to you if you ask somebody for help? Now, I've just, like like I told you, this is only the first part of this uh, white paper, and we're going to stop here, but there is a lot of information there, and we've just begun to scratch the surface of what's going on and uh, what interventions that we can use with people with uh... traumatic complex traumatic stress trust help them learn to trust themselves learning help them learn to identify correctly their internal and external cues those are the two things that i want you to take away from today whatever however they're acting right now maybe how they learned to react back when the trauma happened. They're bigger now, they've got bigger skills now, they are more independent now, so do they have to continue to react that way? Okay, so next week we're gonna pick up with common diagnoses. Thank you for attending today, and again, please print out the white paper if um, this really interests you because there's a lot of really awesome information, even up till now, that I just wasn't able to get into today's presentation. Alright, thanks. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful weekend.